Hey folks, Jerry here with a message before this week's episode. This week we are rebroadcasting an episode with one of our favorite and most impactful guests that we've ever had on the show, Mistress Velvet, who tragically passed away earlier this week. We wanted to rebroadcast this episode today in honor of their life and in honor of their work and the amazing things that they were putting out into the world. So please join us in celebrating and honoring this person's life. There is currently a fundraising effort in their name to help their loved ones pay for funeral services and for support. We will link those in the show notes, and we would greatly appreciate if you could show them support during this time. With that being said, Mistress Velvet's message is heard loud and clear in the following episode, so we hope you can join us in celebrating an amazing human being. Welcome to Finding My Yum, a sex-positive podcast celebrating all forms of sexual expression. Each week, we bring on a new guest to share their journey. We talk honestly and openly about what they're into and what sex, kinks, love, and more look like in the real world. I'm Jerry Courtney Austin. And I'm Will Lentz. And we are your hosts. And today, we are absolutely thrilled to have Mistress Velvet to talk all about their uh, race play within uh, Dominatrix play, uh, social work, um, all the amazing work that they're doing, actually. This interview blew my mind. This is one of the most wonderful people that I've had the pleasure of interviewing. And I'm so excited for you all to be able to listen. Uh, But before that... I think we just wanted to touch base about the state of the world because it feels pretty bleak. Um, <laughs> and Will, you're now in Wisconsin. That correct? is true. Yeah, yeah. I took uh, a couple months to travel back to the Midwest when it looked like everything was going to be shutting down again. Perhaps uh, things are getting worse in SoCal. So I was like, you know what? You know, why not go back someplace where I have a little room to stretch my legs. Yeah, and you got out right in time because <laughs> a couple of days ago, we completely shut back down for the most part. Um, and uh, yeah, it's really frustrating. It's pretty, honestly, it's very mind-blowing to me why we can't get our shit together in this country. And it feels really frustrating. And at like the core of our value system here it just seems so unbelievably fucked for lack of a better word. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's wild to me. I, I still listen to um, some radio stations from back in Kentucky. And one of the things that I uh, noticed was early on in the pandemic, there was a, lo- a level of seriousness and like, oh, we need to, we all need to do this. We're all in this together, et cetera, et cetera. And then like uh, even over the past month or whatever, it's become that kind of like, well, I don't really want to wear a mask. I don't, and it's, it's upticked again in the serious level, but but it just it so easily became that like eh, it's inconvenient to me so i'm not going to worry about it right this individualism is so insidious within our country and it is now affecting people's ability to take care of each other you know we're talking about opening schools back up yeah. where you know and i don't think I my mom is a physician and, um, you know, I'm sure people are doing reading and and whatever you believe. But like, first of all, we're being we're not being told the whole story. So like statistics and information about the virus are purposely being held from the CDC and from the public uh, by our current administration. And, you know, it's a vascular disease. So we have no idea what is happening and kids are being affected. Um, You know, they're having inflammation. And um, it was described to me that the like basically what the what my mom is seeing is like, 
an overactive immune system response, almost oh, wow. like how our body responds to AIDS. Um, not comparing it to AIDS, but but just the idea that our body like goes crazy trying to attack it, which causes a bunch of problems and potential residual problems. And so, yeah, just the idea that we can't wear a fucking mask and and reading examples of South Korea, you know, where they had a very concrete, tight national response that was unified there's no backlash by the people there's incredible monitoring like there's no fear of people going out and not knowing what's going on because there there's notifications of people around you have covid there's crazy testing availability you know i tried to get a test last week and i couldn't even do it in la yeah because all the testing because all the testing centers were full and then if you couldn't go to a testing center, you had to go to your primary care, which also puts the burden on people to have their own insurance, right? Yeah. Which is insane. Our access to insurance here is so costly. Um, and then most primary cares didn't have any tests anyways. When so I went like- to, when I got up here, the first thing I did since I drove, I drove because I didn't want to do the flying thing. And so I obviously exposed myself to a lot of potential uh, hotspots and so the first thing I did when I got up here was to try to take a test and I was able to, but I had to wait four and a half hours in line to like just oh in my, my car to go through a drive through one, um, it, which from what I've heard from other people, that was like the worst day to go because it was right after July 4th and everyone was like, I got to get tested now. But still, sure. I had the luxury of doing that because I had, you know, time. But how is right. every everybody, how are you expecting everybody to be able to do that? Um, it's, yeah, yeah, it's a catastrophe. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this has been a pretty bleak intro, but all of this to say is please wear a mask and stay home as much as you can. I understand that we all don't have the luxury of being able to stay home. Absolutely. But wear a mask and social distance as much as you can. We all want to get out of this. And that is going to be the quickest way that we we can and that we can take care of each other, you know, Um. So without further ado, uh, changing the subject back to Mistress Velvet, who is absolutely phenomenal. You guys are going to thoroughly enjoy this interview. So, ah! yay! Welcome to Finding My Yum. Today, I am so unbelievably excited uh, and grateful to have Mistress Velvet here. They are Chicago's premier African dominatrix, a Marxist-Leninist social worker, managing director of SWAP, Black feminist theorist, sex and pleasure educator. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. Um, I actually, I always ask friends and, and, you know, people who listen to send me people that they think would be great on the show. And I got so many different people sending me the article oh. um, from 2018 about your amazing work, um, uh, like as a as a dom who requires men to read black feminist theory and incorporating that into into dominatrix sessions and i i honestly was like this person is amazing <laughs> i've never heard of anything like this and i i have to talk to them and so i feel very humbled that you were willing to come on oh thanks it is definitely wild when i think about it objectively i'm like what the fuck am i doing this is amazing <laughs> Yeah, right? I mean, yeah, I would imagine when you step back, you're like, 
I've created this amazing world in which I can <laughs> implement these things in such a fascinating way. Um, so I think I'd love, there's so much to talk about, uh, but I think I'd love to start there um, since that was sort of the impetus for this interview. So um, I'd love just a little bit of background of, you know, I, because I know that you're a social worker and you have a million titles to your name and several different jobs. So so what brought you to uh, to become a dominatrix as one of your titles? And, and what was that journey sort of getting to that point? Yeah, um, well, I just want to say, you know, it's so with 2020, so I've been actually a sex worker of all different sorts for the past oh, decade. Okay. Um, and Mistress Velvet really came into existence in 2014 when I was also going through this like political transformation and like starting my gender and sexuality um, master's program. Um, and so I was looking to kind of transform the type of sex work that I was doing. And I knew someone that did, that was a dom for several years and it sounded really enticing. And I think um, something that happens to everyone is we have, I had these misconceptions of what it meant to be a dominatrix. It seemed super glamorous and like, I could just yell at men. And as a baby feminist, I was like, yeah, this sounds really dope. And it was like, actually this requires so much more work than I gave it credit for. Um, but mm -hmm. I also like found it to be very challenging and, to, and found it to be very rewarding, which is why that's like the main kind of sex work I do now. Um, and, you know, I've told this story so many times, but it's, it's fun to repeat in terms of, I have my clients read a lot of different kinds of texts that are important to me around Black feminism and anti-capitalism and liberation. And it really came from this one client who I actually saw today, so we should talk about him. Um, yeah. Who would talk a lot about like not having a lot of people of color in his lives and in his life and feeling kind of weird about his, um, you know, privilege and not knowing how to explore that and not knowing what to do with his privilege. And it became kind of taxing for me to like hold his own kind of trauma with patriarchy and white supremacy. I was like, it's too much for me to do. Here are some readings that were, that I was doing in school at the time. And we, he ended up just kind of adopting the syllabus of the classes that I was taking. Um, and then I enjoyed it so much that I was like, I want to do this with more people. So I don't do it with every single client or submissive or slave or whatever that I have, but I do it with most of them. And at this point, most people seek me out for this kind of power dynamic and relationship. That's, that's incredible. Um, I, I guess I'm curious, you know, in terms of, because there's, well, first of all, I guess I'd like to talk about, you know, there's, like you said, the, the, the actual reality of what being a dom looks like and, and what it can offer um, is, is multifaceted. So uh, before we get into specifically that aspect, like, you know, what I'd love for you to just talk about your experience and of just being a dom in that field, like in that sense. And like what what drew you to that to continue that type of sex work, yeah. uh, you know, as the primary form? Yeah, I think it's a couple of different things. Um, it really I will say doming really changed my kind of relationship to sex and like sex with other people, um, I think we don't give enough credit to people that do like full service, like the kind of bullshit that you get when you are a full service sex worker and like your clients, mostly this cis straight men, like don't respect your time and don't respect your energy and your body and all of these things. And I was like dealing with a lot of like 
sexual violence and sexual trauma. And so some of that was being triggered and coming out in some of my full service sex work on top of just the kind of normalcy of bullshit that you get from people because they don't respect you as a sex worker. And something that I really liked about um, uh, being a dominatrix, and this is just in my experience, this is not to say that like full service workers or other kinds of sex workers can't have this experience. But for me, and I was able to find the power that I was looking for more in in the BDSM world because there was a lot of like the negotiation and the the boundaries were much more intentional. I think like BDSM taught me how to um, to kind of advocate for myself and to respect other people and and have other people respect me. And at the time of my life when I was doing full service, I hadn't gained those skills. I was only dealing with sexual trauma. And so it's been interesting now to be in the BDSM world, to be a dom. And then if I go and do some full service, I feel much more um, stronger and much more capable of kind of defining what the relationship looks like. But it's really BDSM that taught me how to do that. Um, and so I've just kind of stated it because I owe BDSM a lot. Like BDSM and being a dominatrix has really helped me work through all that trauma that I keep mentioning and, and learn how to be better to myself and to other partners, whatever those partners are in my life. And so I just feel like I owe this kind of community a lot. And I also feel very comfortable. I've really grown in this space. Um, and I'm just not, you know, there's no need for me to leave. I'm not ready to leave. Um, and I, yeah, I just feel like it's been a very beautiful healing space for me, to be honest. Uh, just to clarify, when you say full service, what does that mean? Yeah, thanks. Um, so when I say full service, I mean, like, maybe like escorting, that's sometimes the word that people use, or even when I was doing like, uh, girlfriend experience and sugar babying sometimes. So it really um, speaks to the type of like interaction that you're having with clients. So for me, when I was doing full service, that means most likely I was probably engaging in some sort of, you know, sexual activity with my clients. Oh, okay. Okay. Go. Um, yes. And it doesn't necessarily have to have the kind of power dynamic that I have with my clients. You know, it's kind of a, and this is not also not to say that doms don't necessarily have sex with um, their slaves as well, but it's just a different type of sex work. I think mostly right. aligned with escorting. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. And then, uh, you know, I, I've had, uh, several sex workers on and specifically to talk about doming and this this connection to working through trauma and yeah. it being a vehicle for healing yeah. and so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more towards your experience with that since you have mentioned trauma and and without getting into specifics sure. or if you'd like to whichever way but but how BDSM and you know doing this type of work has helped in that arena. And, you know, something I think about with this question is like the way that the BDSM community is kind of defined in the mainstream. Like I think from the 80s, even till now, and even before then, um, there was a lot of like pathologizing of people that like to engage in BDSM and, and acting like we have like severe mental health issues or like that doing BDSM is extremely violent. And it's actually been the exact opposite. Um, not to say that there couldn't be violence within BDSM, but if you're practicing good kind of ethical BDSM, it really was like, it's, it was something so different in the type of like sexual health and relationship education that I 
got in school and the type of like um, dynamics that I was expected to engage in as like growing up as a woman and as a femme. Um, I've just had a lot of like intimate, you know, romantic relationships where we didn't know how to talk about our boundaries. Like that wasn't even, there was just this expectation like, oh, you look like a woman, you're supposed to submit in this specific way. And, and I never knew how to move out of those expectations and BDSM um, and specifically being a dom where I have to really care about someone else's livelihood and health and safety and wellness and pleasure really showed me that there is a whole different side to sexual health and relationship energy and pleasure um, that can be very, that you can feel autonomous in and that, you, that can be very mutual. Um, I wish it was like something that we taught in sex ed more. Like I wish we were taught more about pleasure, like how to get your own pleasure, how to please other people and, and how to be respected. Um, because yeah, just as a person who has experienced multiple forms of sexual violence from partners, it's like our society almost kind of creates these conditions of violence. And then I find BDSM as a place that's like negating those conditions that we grew up in to be like, actually, no, there's other ways for this to exist. And it's been very liberating. And that's why I think it's really helped me through my trauma. Yeah. I, you know, I've, I've dabbled a little bit in this space mm -hmm. and even in the small amount that I've done with a couple different partners or, you know, at different sex parties, the, like getting to play out certain scenarios and have full control or release because of a discussion of boundaries, learning how to identify my boundaries and speak them very clearly with, you know, an understanding that the other person is going to accept them and acknowledge them and give me the space then to play within. Um, I found already just incredibly liberating with like scratching the surface. Yeah, um, yeah. I thought I, I'd love to talk a little bit about um, your upbringing that you kind of mentioned about, you know, what what was your interaction with such sex education or and your your predominant teaching of like what sex was supposed to be like, because I absolutely agree with you. I think our sex education should be sexuality and um, pleasure based and also relational based about how to communicate with partners and like what it means to have relationships with other people while respecting their boundaries other than just, you know, either physical um, genitalia or just mm -hmm. abstinent base, which relatively does nothing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I'd love to hear a little bit about like what was the foundation that sort of brought you then into this you know new space of studying in a graduate program and then also having real life experience yeah. um in in the sex work world yeah my sex ed was fucked up <laughs> it was definitely um like I grew up in a Pentecostal household so I got sex ed in church and also sex ed in public schools and it was abstinence only education it was super binary uh, which just really really messes with your head and like I what I thought sex was was like the shit that I saw in movies where it's like it's gonna be a penis entering a vagina and that's basically it and also for some reason you both are gonna come at the same time <laughs> and, so, like, and like within five minute, yeah, minutes and it's euphoric yeah. <laughs> and there's fireworks and yeah of yeah, course it's like <laughs> like I mean to be honest like through college I was faking orgasms because I didn't even know what an orgasm was like I thought like what I was doing was correct 
And then like sure. finally like played with myself with a shower head and like my early 20s or like maybe late like teens and was like, oh, there's like actually a body experience. But then it took also then it took several years to be able to like experience an orgasm with a partner because I think just like as a woman who was also really suppressing like my queerness um, mm -hmm. and like things around my identity as it relates to being non-binary, I was really trying to perform this very specific kind of, you know, sexual experience. Um, and it just like was later on when I was like, I, I'm actually, I, I'm fluid in so many ways and then found partners that were also fluid. And then like sex did not become this thing that ended with like, the male <laughs> um and that you can have sex with people regardless of their gender and and it could be so many different things it just like i think like these kinds of relationships like the, as it relates to my queerness and my identity really expanded um all of these conversations around sex and then coupling that with also you know some of the really good experiences i had when i was doing full service like people that actually really respected me you know, like some cis men that actually like maybe came, but like waited for me to come too. And were like, cool with the vibrator. Like I had a boyfriend in my early twenties that was so threatened by the presence of a vibrator. It's just like, what? Oh my God, I need to live my best life. And that was not it. <laughs> that is not it. it is a not vibrator it. should always be included oh in your my best God. life, I feel like. <laughs> it's so interesting. It's so interesting. Yeah. But so then the other thing I want to say in terms of sex ed was because I had all of these kinds of like explorations and at some point I called it my sexual awakening and like my mid 20s. Sure. Um, yeah. I was like, I I, yeah, I'm right ed. there. Yeah. yeah. I, mid 20s. Like, I, yeah. I want to do, I want to teach sex ed. And so I um, was teaching sex ed. I had two different sex ed jobs that I was fired at both of them or like asked to leave one day, somehow found out that I was a sex worker because someone was disclosed it and it was really unfortunate because I'm just like it's not like I'm going into these classrooms being like hey here's how to be a whore but it's like I understood right. the importance of sexual health of like getting tested and 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 that abstinence education doesn't work and also that like not every single person in this classroom is straight like how are we also including everyone regardless of their identity in these conversations of sexual health and relationship education. Um, and so I no longer do sex ed because I just kind of sat with the universe and was like the, like the world is not ready to have a lot of sex workers doing sex ed, even though we should be at the front lines of it. Um, oh, 100, I 100% agree with you, yeah. And to put a face to normalize sex work and say you know this is okay it is a it is a yeah. job and I'm still a human being yeah. who is right in front of you and deserves all the respect and rights that that everyone else enjoys you know but I think in the same way that a lot of schools that I worked with were really hesitant to offer barrier methods like condoms and stuff to their students because they would say oh that's going to promote them having sex I think people have that same kind of rhetoric where if it's like oh but you're a sex worker so you're going to promote prostitution and like criminalized work and it's just like no I'm just talking from experience about why we have to take all these things into consideration and not the way to liberation is not like stifling these parts of ourselves right absolutely <laughs> but equipping yeah, people with like weapons and safety and yeah education yeah and pr protection yeah and the ability to to thrive yeah. yeah uh so so when you pivoted from sex ed 
did you go into was it a gender studies graduate program yes yeah I was like fuck you all I'm out and found a master's program that I like from the get-go could be like I've been a sex worker for a long time they're like cool that's dope a lot of us are too come through um and I felt really you know there's a lot of there's a lot to say about academia but in terms of my cohort of people it was like one of the first times and I had been doing sex work for so long by then but doing it in North Carolina I never really felt like I had a community and so being in this program really allowed me to flourish as a sex worker yeah and then I was wondering I guess that kind of speaks to this question but the juxtaposition then of being in school reading literature and history and 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 people who you know were theorizing and at the forefront of these different movements but then actively participating as a sex worker in the field how how did those things bridge together and and I would imagine mm-hmm. the sex work also enhanced your your educational experience yeah. quite a bit well and I think so some of the problems with academia is that we tend to think of it as like the legitimizer of truth and knowledge when it's like people are actually in the streets doing the stuff that you are just talking about in the comfort of these buildings um, and sometimes maybe communities don't have haven't coined the work they're doing in the same way that someone that's an academic is doing but it doesn't mean that that work doesn't exist and so when I went into school I mean a lot of us to be honest I would like cry sometimes to be like we are talking about other communities that we are not a part of and it feels really problematic and we're creating language and bringing a validity to communities that should already have that validity but because of the way that like academia and class and stuff works it's like they're not even seen unless we're talking about it and like people are theorizing and writing about them. And so I would say like, and I don't mean this as like, I'm super smart. I mean, I am super smart, but I mean this to say that like, <laughs> um, I didn't learn yeah, anything own new. Yeah, it, for sure. <laughs> I didn't necessarily learn anything new when I did, when I was in school. I think it just like really helped me kind of flush out things. It really put kind of some language to things that I was experiencing or witnessing. Um, but I feel very grateful that I was doing a master's program while also engaged in a lot of like community-based work so that I did not just become this elitist that's like oh here's how we theorize about identity and blah 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 blah. it's like fucking um nations have been talking about multiple identities and genders for so long just because a bunch of us are in a room talking about it with like high academic language doesn't mean that it hasn't existed and I felt that way about sex work I felt that way about like race and just like everything that I was interacting with in school um all of that is to say also that I still really appreciated my program like it was still really enlightening and and I think it's there's really something to to join a program with a bunch of other like anti-capitalists and and folks working on like oppression to be like, we can be in this space and also challenge it and critique it and also see how it's been important and beneficial to us. Yeah, I think that's incredible. And I I appreciate all of the critique of academia because I I also think it mirrors our political system Mm -hmm. today as well, right? Like the, the people who are running for politics aren't representative of the communities and then they're so far removed that they're talking about these things from such an angle that like Mm -hmm. there's no lens you can't see in because they have never had the experience and they're not on the ground floor. Yeah. And it's just like, remember, we're talking about people and lives right Right. now. Yeah. 
Right, exactly. Uh, okay, so then, so since the article was written in 2018, has has this idea of whoever you're working with and presenting these black feminist, uh, you know, theories and, and readings and sort of incorporating that into the, the doming that you're doing, like, has that evolved? Like, what does that look like now? And especially in 2020, in, you know, the current civil rights movement that we're in, I mean, it feels so applicable and such just like the most perfect way almost to execute this kind of training on like an individual basis yeah. or like an enlightening, you know? Yeah. You know, I would say um, these articles that came out, I think really established me as a dom that engages in race play through literature and theory. Um, and so I'm now grateful like when I first started doing this, a lot of my clients were like, not about it. They're like, I did not come to you for you to read me some obscure text. I just want you to like, peg me. <laughs> sure. Totally. Um, I, I didn't totally see that happening. And like yet. now it's like, I want both. But I'm like, yes, let's do this reading and then let's do that. Um, but you know, I really want to speak. I mean, it's always, it's been such a, it's been many years of growth and, and me settling into Mistress Velvet in the way that she wants to be um but this year in particular has just been like i mean there's been like people i haven't like some clients that i haven't talked to in a couple a little while that are like let's have sessions that's just about reading like you don't even have to peg me now i just need to understand black lives matter and i'm like i've been telling you this for years i told you this when trayvon was murdered and everyone in between like you need to know this stuff but i think people are really like there's something about what has happened these past couple weeks that has really galvanized a lot of people and and, and put a lot of this um work into people's like the front of their minds and you know so i mentioned earlier like there's a client one of my oldest clients that i've talked about in previous interviews about like how he uh started like foundations for black women in the south side of chicago and i saw him today like he came to my house he had gotten <laughs> tested everything was good. And like, we had a long talk about like how he's introducing BLM to his children and learning from them too. And like his responsibility as a white man and father to, to, and as a person with class privilege to really make sure that he is working continuously. And what I was really stressing with him today is like, this is going to be extremely tiring for you. Like, and it should be. Like, you have so much privilege that every moment of your life, separate from our relationship, if you're committed to this, should be spent um, doing anti-racist work. And so I really feel grateful that, like, this kind of race play is going into a deeper level because of everything that's going on. Like, I'm talking with this guy about what does it mean to get rid of the police? We would not have had that conversation, you know? So yeah, the conversations have gotten deeper. We're talking about system change and it's just, it's fantastic. <laughs> I'm high. Yeah, I, 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 I love it. And I imagine, you know, as somebody who, I, as a white person who was one of those who was like identified as pretty progressive, I also have been incredibly galvanized by what has been happening and because i think of covid19 and having to yeah. stop 
everything else right yeah. and and finally have a moment where i can you know for lack of a better word get my head out of my own fucking ass yeah. and my own trivial problems like your know, privileged problems and be like oh there's a lot more that i can be doing yeah. and there's a lot that i don't know yeah. and so i i i i'm in awe of the work you're doing and i i wonder you know because i think when you when you couple it also if it's not just reading and even if it is it's it's impactful as well but when you couple it with physical with a physical nature of connection or in, in BDSM or whatever I I can only imagine how much more impactful it actually is mm -hmm. because when you physically feel something or when you physically attach especially sexually vulnerably like in a in a vulnerable position I can't I can just imagine it would be that much more effective. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it also really has changed like materially materially changed the work that my clients do when they're not with me. So, you know, over the past couple of years it could be things like from anywhere from like really dumb stuff um like holding the door for black women i'm like okay whatever you do that that's fine to like if you are <laughs> sure. part of the hiring process trying to hire more people of color and now it's like oh and who are you donating to and are you going into the streets you know like it's like has really changed like the praxis and the practice of it like when we talk about things in the dungeon or at this case in my home because we're all working from home what does it look like that you're doing outside of our time together and they're like i'm going to protests and joining the blockade of white people that are like using their bodies to protect people of color and things like that and yeah <laughs> yeah it's amazing uh and so then to go along with that, um, I'm wondering, so a couple of things you highlighted or that I that I read previously was one thing that really struck out was as a black woman coming into a position of power as a dom over cis white men and that this dynamic playing out um I don't know, the catharsis of it and, and the healing capability, kind of what we were talking about with trauma. And so I'm wondering... Uh, I don't know. I'd just love to hear if you could speak to that or how, how that has evolved because um, I also imagine, and if I'm out of turn, please tell me, but that that has changed and also impacted maybe the way that you speak with other people or, or other opportunities or, or, or how it just manifests mm -hmm. after doing this for so long. Yeah. Oh, this is a great question. I think two things I'm thinking of. One is... You know, I'm a communist, and so at the root of the any type of work that I do, like organizing or whatever, I'm thinking about, like, how are we going to overthrow <laughs> the ruling class? Um, and our, and is, our, is the work that I'm doing going towards building that movement and building, like, going towards a revolution? And I think I have been hard on myself a lot because I'm a super critical person. Like I'm very self-critical. My therapist tells me that all the time. And so <laughs> sometimes with doming, I'm just like, you know, like I'm talking to these people about reparations and I'm talking to them about black feminist theory and Marx and, and everyone. And, and is it enough? Like, I don't know. And what are they doing with this? But you know what? I think when we are like anyone that's oppressed, we have to find these moments of joy and pleasure and catharsis. And so over the years, I've came to just appreciate 
yeah, I've come to just appreciate like the pleasure that it provides me to be able to talk to, about texts and certain theories with people that have never engaged with this before. Um, and to see it have even some, a little bit of an impact in their lives and the, and the ways that they think about things. It feels like, I feel grateful. It feels rewarding. It feels powerful, but it also just feels, it just feels good. Like it feels like I'm in some little weird kind of community, like sex community, which is like, <laughs> sure. um, yeah. but then the other thing is, you know, I think, I always want to make sure that we're not like fetishizing like um, oppressed groups and oppressed identities. And like, just because I am black and femme does not mean that I'm like always on point with stuff, you know? And so okay. like, I have to, I'm constantly learning and educating and unlearning and changing and evolving and for myself and for the movement. And then I also bring that to my clients because again, most of these people don't even have black people in their lives, much less one that isn't like on some, uncle tom shit you know so um, yeah yeah i i almost feel and don't tell don't tell my clients that i say this but i almost feel <laughs> like i owe it to them to make sure that i'm bringing my best self and so you know like i when all of these conversations of like defunding and an abolition as it relates to police came up i tried to make sure that i read all sides of it so not because I like am into like objective, no, that shit's bullshit, but because I have to think about what kind of perspectives are my clients going to come to me from, and I want to be able to, to address all of it and to answer it in a way that's, you know, I'm providing them patience and, and safety to be kind of fucked up. And I'm the one, I'm like, I'd rather you be fucked up with me than like outside of here. And so they also kind of like, I'm indebted to them in some way. I'm indebted to the struggle and just like my ancestors, but I'm also indebted to my clients in the sense that like, because they're, they're getting a service for me, I am providing that service to the best of my ability. And that includes like ongoing education. <laughs> so it's weird. Right. I'm in some weird world. <laughs> I love this world. I think more people should be like a part of of some kind of amalgamation of this world because <laughs> I think it's amazing. <laughs> Honestly, I do. Um, I, I I was wondering one of the things that came up in in the article too, and 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 I don't know if this has shifted, but was the idea of representation, particularly within dominatrix and. I think particularly within Dom, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea that, you know, white cis women are almost the face of that and maybe because of Fifty Shades of Grey, um, you know, that's at the forefront and, and that the community is is relatively diverse. And so I'm wondering, has that shifted at all in terms of more, I don't know, visibility or you, you know do, has it stayed sort of the same since, since you know I used to say I used to say there's not a lot of black doms um and that is not true at all there's a lot of black doms um but I think we get drowned out by like and not just like black folks but also folks with disability and folks that are not just like cis women like all of these intersecting identities get drowned out by like our Western beauty standards and who is not going to be shadow banned and all this shit. And so, I mean, this was, this is what made it really hard for me to learn how to be a Dom because it was a white Dom that kind of showed me the ropes. And then I would watch like videos of Doms and they were all white. A lot of them were just like Russian. <laughs> and I was just yeah. like trying to mimic that. And I was like, Oh, this is not me. How do I like become like an Afrofuturistic Dom? Like, does this exist? And 
I think now that I'm so lucky to have access to Dom communities like in Chicago and kind of across the country, I'm like, oh, there's a lot of black doms. We out here. Um, but we like you are then faced with the challenge of that representation, like literally like not being able to be seen because um, our identities, whatever kind of sex work you're doing is being overshadowed by like I think about I just started OnlyFans. I, I hate having actually my OnlyFans might have been closed. I don't know because I don't use it that much. But when I go on yeah. OnlyFans, I'm like, it's just a lot of skinny white women. And it's so much work to like get seen and noticed. And and even if people see you, honestly, they don't give a fuck that you're black. <laughs> and if you're like mm. fat and if you're a dis like have a disability and if you're trans, this is not the pe these are not the bodies that people are looking for. And so I don't know if I'm really answering your question. I'm just kind of venting about my frustration with that. Um, sure. And no, and I, I I think that makes sense. And I think it. I think you talk about this in the article too. But like, it it's it's a microcosm for the larger world yeah. that we live in, and the systemic oppression that exists, and the idolizing of you know white cis women thin white cis women right mm -hmm. and, and that it, it's it's projecting into these other communities as well yeah yeah and i think i think something like i want to acknowledge the kind of privilege that i have as a sex worker now particularly as a dom both when i reflect on the all the kinds of sex work that i've done over the course of my life and for what reasons and then also when i compare myself to other like black doms that i know i've had to use like other I've had to use white women like white women that are writing at HuffPost or other platforms that have access and reach I've had to use them to to be able to be seen and I now feel like I'm pretty stable as Mistress Velvet but it's because of because of the access that like privileged people have given me and I'm grateful for that but it's also not a systemic access. Like, so now I have to mm -hmm. then be able to provide that platform for other folks. And it's just, it's just this kind of cycle of like, like this access is not sustainable. It's not systemically built. You know, it's like if people give you the time of day to be on your podcast or whatever, then you might get noticed by more people. Um, and it's just kind of sad because especially when we talk about sex work, like at the end of the day, this is work. This is people's livelihoods to take care of themselves, their families, whatever. And it's like, oh, you're we're put up against all of these like um, roadblocks because of systemic racism and things like that. Well, and I think one of the things, you know, that's obviously very late, but the the burden that lies on people of privilege like me as a white person who can do the grunt work to find people to look for people to actively bring on and to amplify their voices so that the burden falls you know on us to also help to 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 not make you go out of your way to be like i'm i'm here i'm extending a hand you know mm -hmm. in order to bridge that gap i think is really important as well yeah so there's huffing yeah yeah and i just want to add to that also like when i think about like these platforms, like it's good that I've been able to have the space to talk about the type of practice that I have, but also it's like, what does it do? Like when people are kind of telling your story for you, like you're, like if you're a person of privilege bringing me into your space to talk about my story, and then maybe you get like a lot of, you know, 
benefits from that. And then there's, it's so easy to dispose of the person that you're, you're talking about, you know? So I've had to make a very concerted effort with, with the help of my community to continue to make sure that my face and story is shown. I didn't want to just be talked about once in an article and then not be thought of again. And then the person that wrote an article about me or, or did a podcast on me can pat themselves on the back. It's like, it's like, how do you keep that work going and then increasing the space to include people? And, and this is nothing on you, you know, it's just like, no, these are yeah. things that I think about a lot. <laughs> well, and I, no, I appreciate you, you saying that. And I think that is definitely, you know, I, 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 I've fallen into this trap so many times of being like, I did a good thing and now I'm set, you know, and, and I think that that's something particularly of white supremacy and the and, and the culture is like, you know, we do one thing. I, I was listening to a Reply All podcast about people Venmoing their black yeah. friends that they, you know, that, like that's like, yeah, right. Like five dollars and then being like. I did I did something, you know, and I think that that's so representative of 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 how we think we can contribute and and not that um you know there's always more to do and and I, and and it is constantly a learning and unlearning process for me as well, but I I just think that that is such a clear example of, you know, how little we can do and mm-hmm. and feel good about mm-hmm. it and that it that's definitely something that needs to change systemically as well. Mm-hmm. Um uh, so, yeah, so I, I would love to talk a little bit about SWAP mm-hmm. um, and this new role that, that you're taking on. And, um, yeah, I'd love to hear about the organization and, and what it is and, and what you do. Yeah, so SWAP stands for Sex Workers Outreach Project, SWAP USA specifically. Uh, I have, you know, kind of been around SWAP for a couple years. Once I moved into Chicago, um, SWAP is is like one of the not that many <laughs> sex work related mm-hmm. organizations. And I would help with like December 17th, like, um, you know, International Violence Against Sex Workers um, Day. And so SWAP has always, especially SWAP Chicago, like they've done a lot of like outreach and and um, I just always respected that the work that they did, but I never really had time to like really volunteer and so I just got this role as the managing director. Like, I think I'm not even a month in. And it's very scary. Um, it's very scary. Congratulations. Thank you. It's scary because SWAP is a massive organization. There's so many different chapters across the country. Um, you're dealing with so many different dynamics. And, and you have to balance this, like, supporting um, each of these chapters own self-determination because every community and their struggle looks different and then also helping them figure out like the things that they're dealing with and I so we have three exec like kind of co-executive directors like the person that does that that's the chapter director the person that's the communications director and then I'm the managing director so doing a lot of like that like administrative like um, strategic initiative and the vision and the grants um, which is really a lot of where my expertise lies I um, worked. I've worked in nonprofits for a long time and do that kind of work. And so I'm really happy to bring those skills to SWAP because it's the largest sex worker organization in the country. <laughs> and then, yeah, it, it it's a, the efforts are amazing. And and I actually didn't know how widespread it was um, mm-hmm. from what you just said. But so, 
in terms of COVID-19 specifically and, and what's being done now, I know that, you know, the, the federal government was preventing um, loans and grant money from being accessed from the, the funds that were distributed, specifically if you were a sex worker. And so, um, you know, doubling down on this already systemic oppression of sex work and 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 people who are are doing these kind of is doing this kind of work and so i'm wondering if there's what like what is going on right now if if you have knowledge of it and and what are there countermeasures that are being taken that that need help or that we can get involved in or anything like that yeah um well i you know i can't speak in terms of I don't know, I'm still really trying to like, just get used to the position, but I know sure. like outside of SWAP, I've just been seeing a lot of like funds, right? Like what is the, what is our countermeasure to like systemic class oppression? It's like community build, building and mutual aid. And so, you know, I can link you with some of the funds that yeah. I've seen. I've also posted some, like I made like a little resource guide on my Instagram and Twitter that had a lot of like the funds that I've just been trying to donate to throughout these past couple of months because something that I always talk about is like sex workers like a lot of us we're not like most of us here in the United States aren't unionized and and don't have access to healthcare through our work and so these are the type of workers that really get punished from something like this pandemic where it's like oh now you can't see people and also now you don't have any sort of like protections um, and so the best that I've been able to do is just like donate as much as I can when I can to different funds that are like providing for people in certain communities and and something I like about SWAP is the fact that there is so many chapters I'm now I feel like I have even more access to different communities like I just donated something to like Utah SWAP I was like I wasn't even thinking about Utah before you know no offense to Utah but now you're on my radar so yeah (laughs) so I think it kind of centralizes all of these different efforts in different cities and it's not just the big cities like Chicago and LA but there's chapters all across the country, as I said. So it's also giving me access to smaller communities that I might not have thought of. Which, yeah, which is amazing. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't have thought of, of Utah yeah. either, but it makes sense. Like there's a presence everywhere. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, people need to make a living, um, you know, and choose to do sex work. So, um, I, I, so yeah, I, I would love the resource guide and I can look at that and we can put that in the show notes as well sure. so people have access to it. Um, and then I think the last part that I'd love to talk to is is the – the way that you describe being a Marxist Leninist social worker and you mentioned um you know communist communism before and I guess I I just like to because I feel like it kind of all circles back together and you kind of touched on that but how do those things relate to the other topics and and the other you know um sex education and and pleasure work that you're doing um like how how do those all kind of intersect yeah um you know i'm gonna admit it like i'm a scorpio and i'm like i should talk a lot and i'm super (laughs) critical of myself and also literally everything and i think when i became a social worker like i had um fallen victim to the kind of dream of like oh you're gonna be a social worker and you're gonna help people and then well on one hand you literally don't have the resources to do it because social work is so underfunded but also i think more critically is like even the type of like like how do i say this like what we learn 
um, to become social workers, I realized later on was like really paternalistic and like rooted in like savior complexes. And it, it just took me a while to kind of get oh, that feeling. And, mm-hmm. and once I did, I was like, this does not feel good. It's like, um, it's like, oh, you're putting like oppression in a nice little pretty bow. It doesn't mean that it's not still fucked up. And so I think I, I bring, I bring my communism into everything I do because it gives me like, it gives me direction and a purpose. And so when I'm doing social work and particularly I do like domestic and sexual violence work because of my experiences, um, I, my, my goals and my objectives become less aligned with like, what is the agency's goals, which are really, what is the goals of the board, which is really based, you know, people who have the money to fund us and therefore kind of shape the work that we can do. And now I'm like, what is the interest of, of this person and this community? And what is the best interest of all of us as a community to move forward? And, and what is liberation from like your sexual trauma, for example, look like? And so when I, I, I bring in the communism to swap, to to my social work and to to sex work it really helps me stay accountable to work that i think is is ethical um and for the betterment of all people and work that i'm not doing to make myself feel good or to be paternalistic um but because we all need to be liberated from these systems of oppression um and i think i i just want to say one more thing about sex social work um I think a lot about, you know, like I'm an immigrant. And so I think about like my upbringing as a Christian, particularly as a Pentecostal. And I'm coming from Africa and we would go to Central and South America and go pray for people and build them wells and then like, and then hope that they would come to Christ. And and th- and that would be our good deed for a week a year. And I was just like, how are these, how is this helping um, the material conditions of these people? And I find some similarities between the missionary work that I did back when I was a Christian um, and like the expectations of us as social workers, like going into, like before I used to do homeless work, going into homeless communities and getting them housing and just being like, we fixed everything for you. And it's really not like that. And so how do you be trauma informed and 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 embody harm reduction and all of these things um, so that you're doing work that is again, for the betterment of people. Um, so yeah, I feel like I just live in a lot of like contradictions. Like I hate everything and also I'm extremely passionate <laughs> about everything. <laughs> sure. I think that's the only inherent way to make change though, right? <laughs> Is to like understand the positives and the negatives and wield the negatives in order to make actual change and move people forward. Because I, 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 I appreciate and I echo everything that you're saying because – I've actually never thought of saviorship within social work, but absolutely. And particularly since it's underfunded, it's really putting band-aids, not even band-aids. Yeah. I don't even know. Like yeah. a, like a, like a kissing a wound and be yeah. like, well, we, we kissed it. And so yeah. now you should just feel better. Yeah. Um, and, and just to uh, define communism because you know it it is such a a heated term and it's Mm -hmm. been bastardized so many times in your view what what does paternal and 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 the paternal side of of it versus like this communistic side what is that what what is that definition in your mind yeah yeah um in very very reductive terms i think of communism as like the highest state of socialism like after 
we have a revolution from capitalist imperialism, we'll, we'll move into some sort of socialist state. Well, and, and there's different types of communists, I should say. So I am a, a particular, I'm a Marxist-Leninist, which is a, like one strand of communism. But speaking in general terms, we, I think our goal is to move to a, to a world where like we as people own our bodies and own the work that we do and we're not exploited. Like this is just very general terms. And, and when I think about, I juxtapose that with the kind of work that we do within institutions where no matter how good I can feel um, as a social worker, I'm still indebted to this system that perpetuates like class oppression. Like, um, and so I just, when I think about communism, it's this like disruption, dismantling of these systems of oppression, class and race and ability, um, and that we are owners of our own lives, our owners of our own work. Um, we have more say and like what we want to do in our lives and don't work this fucking like nine to five job where our like labor is defined by someone else. Like you work a, if you are a social worker, you work like a $20 an hour. I'm worth like a million dollars an hour and I will never be able to be paid my worth under capitalism. Um, and, oops. I thought I lost you. Um, no, you're good. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I don't think that like, you know, I think communism is much bigger than the work that I'm doing. Like, um, but I think it just feels like those little inches, like inching myself closer to a revolution, closer to this like future that we can imagine where communities are safe and, um, and we can have multiple genders and, and we can be more expressive, whether it's through sex or through art or whatever. Um, and the things that we make with our bodies, we have ownership to and, and can share with each other. You know, there's just this beauty there. Like life can be so much more beautiful and can have so much less suffering than the systems, like the economic systems that we currently have. And so that's kind of like when I, at the root of all the work I do is like this goal and desire for the future. Like I might not live through a revolution, but you know, just in the same way that our ancestors,